0: Hello, this is Aaron and welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited today to get to talk about an organization that I co-founded and where I am a senior fellow, and that is American Reformer. You're going to learn a lot more about it, but for now, the most important thing is to know you can find us on the web at AmericanReformer.org. I am joined today by two of my colleagues, Nate Fisher, uh, who is another co-founder, who is the president and chairman of the board. Of American Reformer and also Josh Abatoy, who is our executive director. Gentlemen, thank you for joining.
1: Thank you,
2: thank you.
0: Before we dig in on American Reformer and what it is and what we're doing, uh, maybe you could each just very briefly introduce yourself and tell a little tell people a little bit about your backgrounds.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, my name is Josh Abatoy. Joined American Reformer a little bit over a year ago. Um, I'm a lawyer by background, so worked in the uh, private equity MA and a space uh, in law uh, down in Houston, Texas for a number of years, then went in-house and did uh, transactions for a, a private equity-owned uh, PortCo uh, for a couple of years before joining American Reformer, um, joined, uh, struck up a conversation with Nate, and uh, was sort of captivated by the work that American Reformer's doing Um you know, was compelled by uh, by what I saw going on in the country around me, and you know, um, me giving my best years and my best efforts to um, making money uh, while I well I thought that the the country and the church uh, were were in a bit of a crisis, and so um, felt really compelled to uh, to jump ship and join uh, what what Nate and, and others you Aaron helped to co-found uh, to to run this
2: organization.
0: Great, thanks. And uh, you, Nate.
2: Sure. Well, uh, my background was in business, so I've been interested in a lot of these factors. I've been inter- interested in politics. I've been interested in uh, ideas, uh, ideas, and Christianity for quite a while. But my career started in business. I uh, went to law school, never practiced law. I uh, started buying distressed apartment buildings in 2011, really uh, based not on a particular interest in real estate, but based on seeing a major. Opportunity for asymmetric uh, returns, asymmetric impact, and that in many ways is the defining aspect of my career. Is I'm looking for opportunities whose time is right, opportunities who uh, opportunities that have this uh, this ability for uh, for real impact. And it was then it, it was it was in the Trump era uh, that I realized that the political space. Uh, and I mean that in the very broad sense, the political space, uh, these questions around the organization of institutions around the ideas behind institutions was undergoing a paradigm shift that was uh, truly massive in its potential impact. And uh, as a result of that, that was where the big opportunities were going to be. That was not only where the big opportunities were going to be, but that was where needs uh, massive needs were for people who share our values. And like Josh, uh, I felt compelled uh, to do something here because there. Uh, I, I don't think that there's guaranteed to be a great future for our kids if we don't change the direction of some, uh, some key things in the country. Uh, one big influence there was Aaron. I was reading Aaron's newsletter and Aaron's newsletter, I think. Uh, Aaron's newsletter helped bridge, uh, I would say some critiques I had From the business world. I mean, use an example. He cites Talib. Talib was an influence in the business world. Talib helped me understand and recognize a lot of flaws in dominant business thinking, which really shaped how I approached the world uh, as I approached that as an investor uh, and as a businessman. And uh, realizing that a lot of those same types of critiques, not that one particularly, but many others that had similarities uh, applied to, they applied to politics and they also applied to the church in ways that. Uh, I think gave me a much greater confidence to recognize that these are, these are actually themes that run across society. And if they're themes that run across society, the solution is going to be holistic as well. So I ended up uh, starting an organization called new founding, which is focused on the business and the really business and technology and really building an alternate framing an alternative movement, building alternative institutions in business and technology uh, for uh, for people on the right, uh, for people who have critiques uh, with the dominant, uh, really left-left wing doctrine behind many of those institutions, uh, but ultimately that alternative vision needs to be led by. Uh, it needs to be anchored to Christianity, and it needs to be led by a vibrant church. And that was uh, another uh, point that Aaron made very effectively: is we don't reform the church if we don't uh, if we don't change the direction of the church, then uh, we're, we're in danger of losing uh really the only thing that can hold the country uh, uh hold the country back and, and ultimately lead change in the country so that led uh really seeing american reform as a sister project a necessary sister project if we're going to try to change things in the commercial space uh both to both to chart the ideas that are going to influence all of what we're doing and also to actually move those institutions uh Uh, move those institutions are often heading in a similar direction to a lot of uh, secular institutions.
0: Great. Josh, uh, why don't you give us a little bit about American Reformer? What is American Reformer?
1: American Reformer is an organization that's seeking to reinvigorate the Protestant church for today. Um, Sort of does this through two primary efforts. The first thing is a journal, which folks may have seen or read. Um, In this journal, we cover a wide range of topics. We go with politics, cultural matters, um, some theology, family, education. We're talking about issues that are of pressing concern to evangelicals today. Um, We're doing it uh, anchored in the Protestant tradition, which is very rich. There's been a lot of resourcement going on in different quarters, but it has a lot of great things to say for Christians today about um, the challenges that we face. And you know, um, so, so we're we're trying to recover that, um, but but always with an eye towards action. You know, actionable advice, um, practical uh, articles that folks can can take away and it can impact how they act politically and in their local communities and churches. Um, you know, the journal is somewhat academic in tenor, but I'd say it's really aimed at leaders and influential people within Christian communities. So this could be pastors, it could be seminarians or seminary professors. It could also just be, you know, a lay elder who's a businessman in a local church or somebody who's got some authority in a Christian school. But it, it's, it's aimed at a generally educated audience um, and an audience that is in a position to, you know, wield authority and influence in some, some community that matters within, within a Christian institution. And um, so, so, alongside we've got that journal. You can check us out at AmericanReformer.org. Uh, alongside that, um, we've got a reform uh, initiative. This is sort of the secondary aspect of our organization. It's like you could think of it as our action arm. But we uh, we do a range of activities through that initiative, which are aimed at equipping stakeholders at key Christian institutions to help um, to help them prudently navigate the current cultural environment. Um, You know, we could run through a parade of horribles right about how um, incentives for Christian leaders are often perverse, uh, where, you know, you get to the top of a Christian organization. And once you've ascended that ladder, the incentives are actually pulling you towards um, messaging and actions that are not in the interests of the folks that you lead, but are good for your own personal platform. And we need to get very serious about reorienting the, reorienting the uh, incentives that folks at the top experience, and helping Christian institutions, boards, folks like that, um, understand how to reorganize and reform their institutions to properly align the incentives. So, in this reform work, we we engage in a range of activities. We do things like, you know, consulting with board members or even training boards holistically, or, um, you know, consulting with pastors who have particular initiatives that they want to try to uh, bring to fruition, folks who are leaders in in the uh, Christian school movement, um, you know, working with uh, influential people in the various denominations, always with an eye towards reform and helping them solve for uh, perverse incentives that that their institutions tend to have uh, in the current environment.
0: Why do we need an organization like American Reformer, given all the existing organizations that are out there? Why yet another organization?
1: Yeah, we. Um, I, I think that American Reformers uniquely positioned between um, sort of the the uh, evangelical elite and then the the grassroots and the people in the pews. We are committed to sort of bridging a gulf that's been widening. Um, you know, I think this gulf was, uh, you've talked about this at length in your three worlds paradigm, right? That this gulf has sort of appeared over certain flashpoints, right? Um, President Trump, um, you know, CRT, uh, criminal justice, right, broadly, um, you know, even, even things like COVID, um, you know, you saw very divergent responses from evangelical elites, sort of the folks at the, at the very head of prominent evangelical institutions, relative to evangelicals as a group, as a sociological group in their churches across the country. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a significant gap. The, the existing leaders are not well-representing the folks that they lead. And, uh, you know, barring, barring interventions and uh, constructive solutions from an organization like American Reformer, that gulf will worsen and will lead to, you know, institutions being destroyed or being, um, you know, corrupted sort of beyond hope. Um, so what what we think we're doing is is relatively unique in the space, which is actually trying to come to, come to these institutions and the leaders there, and help them uh, adjust, change course, reform proactively um, before the crisis just takes them and they become, you know, another you know, another name in a list of a parade of horribles of, you know, sort of,
2: um, fallen evangelical institutions. Can I touch on, I can touch on, I think two additional, two points that Aaron made in a couple of newsletters that I found very influential. One is, uh, one that really inspired a lot of this is that, uh, is a newsletter where he argued, where you argued that, uh, Christians should be on the advance, not the retreat and how, the american i think it's a very american tradition it's a very conservative tradition but also american tradition to leave a corrupted institution and abandon it and go you go west you go to america in the first place that's that's in the in our dna and ultimately first of all we don't have a frontier anymore Uh, second of all you leave a lot behind and so i think if you have this doctrine where the default response that conservatives which i recognize myself have is to just leave an institution uh then that's one reason that I think the existing institutions, uh, even on the right, that that that's in their spirit, and they're not doing enough uh, proactive advance. And there was another one where you made the point that uh, I think conservatives tend to work in, tell me if this is right, conservatives tend to work in institutions, whereas liberals work on the institutions.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
2: that, again, is uh, what you'll see in many of these cases is, the viewpoint in our reform work, we are, we are advocating for things that in many cases, a majority of the people associated with this institution probably agree with us on, but we're not the, but there's no, there's no professional focused on it, on advocating their viewpoint. And they don't really have the because that's not what we do. We don't have the skills we in the movement more broadly uh, conservatives don't have the skills to really advocate, uh, and I'll give an example. There was a uh, the denomination that I grew up in, the Christian Reformed Church, uh, had a vote on uh, homosexuality. It was a really basic issue whether the the confession uh, when it prohibit whether the confession effectively prohibited homosexuality based or homosexual practice based on prohibiting uh, based on requiring uh, a, a historic Christian sexual ethic and. In advance of that, you had the denomination itself. You had professional bureaucrats effectively in this organization organize listening tours where they would listen to those who are affected by the decision and all sorts of things that are just uh, using every institutional resource, using all of their know-how on the payroll of the denomination itself to try to do everything they can to sway the vote to, to block this thing. It ended up passing something like 65% because ultimately the denomination does not accept that liberal viewpoint. But when you have an institution where the professional staff, the people in there are using their jobs, they're using their platforms, uh, they're developing skills to try to advocate for a leftward direction. Uh, and the other side is largely a group of lay people who are, we have jobs, we have uh, we have uh, other concerns, or we're just more concerned with the mission, we're more concerned with the good work of the church. Uh, i think what american reformer can do is it can provide an alternative balance it can actually be there and it can be an institution whose job it is to actually fight for the integrity of these institutions whose job it is to actually represent many people who have maybe maybe perhaps naively assumed that they don't need to work on the politics of the institution they just want to do the good work of the institution uh it's an institution we become an organization that can actually build those muscles develop capabilities learn, learn what activism, learn what successful institutional activism on the right actually looks like. Because another point uh, Aaron's made, we can't just follow the same playbook as the other side. We're not going for the same goals. So if, if we're not used to fighting these campaigns, then we really, in many cases, don't even know what we need to do to win these. We can look at a few examples. So I think, to me, there's no one else out there really doing that, especially at the institutional level. And that's crucial, uh, crucial mission.
0: Yeah, the perspective I would add is I, I started with this idea because I was trying to it's like you start a company because you scratch your own itch, you address your own problem. The question I had is, where do I do my work institutionally? Is there an institution that I can do my work? And my work at the time was very focused on gender issues, especially men's issues in the evangelical world or Christian world, but especially evangelical, where I saw that the teachings of the evangelical church were simply off base in important ways. Not necessarily theological teachings, but much of the life coaching uh, was not right. And they admit that things in the past were not right. They admit purity culture was wrong, for example. So I'm not the first person to say this, and so uh, where can I do this work? And I had been working at the Manhattan Institute in New York, which is a conservative think tank working on urban policy. And I look around and basically realize there is no place in Conservatism Inc. to do any sort of religious based work. It's uh, very, very secular. And to the extent that there's religious based, you know, places to do religious work, it's almost entirely Catholic dominated. So a lot of these organizations are basically Catholic. Uh, control. There are only a few that are, that are basically uh, Protestant. And so, uh, you know, there are some uh, exceptions. Uh, you know, today I think, uh, you know, Ryan Anderson doing a great job at EPPC. So if I were starting over, I might say, hey, can I hang a shingle at P- EPPC or something like that? But I'm like, there's no institution in Conservatism, Inc., which is where I was working to do this. And I looked at the, the specific evangelical institutions. They were all aligned with essentially existing points of view and the incumbent status quo position. So they're not likely to host any kind of reformist movement. And this has been um, a, uh, a challenge really within this this whole world. You know, my former Manhattan Institute colleague, Orrin Cass, uh, wrote a great book called The Once and Future Worker, where he just wanted to rethink some of the tr- traditional conservative economic dogma. And it was the talk of the town when it came out, generated a lot of discussion, pro and con controversy. It probably could have been a, the tentpole yep. of an entire new practice area around economic policy at MI. But he ended up leaving to start American Compass, his own institution, because obviously MI was not interested in pursuing that line of work. And so sometimes you do kind of get forced out. I think there's an irony of starting a new institution when you think you don't need to abandon institutions, Uh, and yet there were not good institutions uh, to do these things. So that that was definitely one of the things that uh, motivated me, particularly since the goal, uh, I think a lot of people's goals when they leave and start over, like leaving the public schools to start a classical Christian school, which is a good thing I approve of that, uh, is that the idea is to do something to be left alone. I want to be left alone. Whereas my goal is not to just go do my thing in peace, although I hope I don't get disturbed, but I want to change the way the evangelical church thinks about certain issues. And so uh, I, I still see myself as kind of invested in these legacy institutions, even if I'm not part of them uh, as well. One of the examples uh, I think that's uh, really good and that I was not really involved in, so I, I um, uh, maybe I'll ask you, Josh, to talk about it, uh, was uh, the work at Grove City College uh, is an example of the kind of uh, reform work that we do. And I think that's somewhat public. So is, is there something you'd tell us just mm-hmm. as is, is an example of that, of what we do in the reform space?
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, that that's, that's the most public uh, effort that we've gotten involved in as an organization. Um, Last fall, uh, shortly after I joined American Reformer, actually just became aware uh, of uh, a situation that was developing at Grove City. Uh, You know, uh, the story will probably rhyme with a lot of stories other people have heard. You know, basically the, um, you know, the institution was uh, perceived by many of its important stakeholders as uh, being soft on CRT, platforming CRT. And then going along with that, um, some some LGBT, affirmation as well. I I guess I should say for your benefit of your audience to start out, Grove City College is a very conservative Christian institution. It's historically, Grove City and Hillsdale are mentioned in the same sentence uh, with the differentiator. Both of them have this strong heritage of political conservative activism, but Grove City always had this differentiator where it, it had that strong conservative political Uh, bent, but then it also was more forthright about its Christian heritage as well. Um, You know, they were actually, they beat Hillsdale to suing the federal government over Title IX funding. They went all the way up to the Supreme Court, uh, lost the case, but then for uh, declined federal funding anyways. And uh, they did that in the 80s. I think they were one of the very first Institutions to do so, um, you know. Now there's obviously a lot of institutions that are lining up because they see the writing on the wall with uh, Department of Education policies and what what may be coming down the pipe there. But very forward looking institution in the 80s, um, you know, they were pre- pretty uh, sort of an intellectual home for people in the you know Austrian School of economics. Uh, actually, Angela Cota you know. A, Claremont fame uh, taught at Grove City for quite a while very plugged in with the conservative movement during the 70s 80s and, and 90s still some you know still to this day they've got a lot of strength there and you know Carl Truman and other very you know prominent uh, Christian
0: uh, yeah, he's a heavy
1: intellectuals wife. teach there yeah so so um, so they've got this fantastic legacy right so so I, I guess we should say with Grove City, um, you know, you're grading on a strict curve. Uh, this is a school with a, a sterling legacy and reputation with a constituency that's really engaged, you know, alumni and donors, very engaged, plugged into the conservative movement. And so they, they had these concerns over, you know, what was perceived as, you know, sort of caving to uh, a woke incursion, um, which really started after the summer of 2020. And uh, you saw a lot of institutions that didn't have, I think, enough, Institutional confidence were approached by activists, or you know, faced some student activism in their bodies, and you know, gave tried to throw a bone to you know the social justice uh, interest groups, and and I think that's basically what happened happened there. Um, so this grassroots coalition involving some you know a lot of parents and alumni and donors. But some prominent names as well like you know scott Klusendorf has been highly involved um, they had these concerns um, you know and they they uh, tried to raise them privately and didn't really get a response then they did a public petition um, a year ago didn't get a great response to that either um, you know so they were they were concerned that the the whole effort would sort of die on the vine and um, some of the folks involved with that approached me and, you know, we had some conversations and so we actually ran, we don't usually do exposés in American reform, but we ran sort of a, you know, a little bit more of a investigative about what was going on at, at Grove City um, to put some wind in the sails of of the efforts that these folks were trying to, uh, to uh, bring about. And, uh, you know, and that, that sort of, after that article hit, you know, uh, everything broke loose and there was a lot of media coverage and lots of different outlets uh, and a lot of conversations with you know very important stakeholders over at that institution, a lot of consultations with the grassroots group, what they were seeking to accomplish there. Um, ultimately, this culminated actually in the board of directors at Grove City getting involved and they did a very thorough investigation of everything that was going on and uh, actually issued a really exemplary sort of statement clarifying what they as an institution you know thought about CRT what its place was how it fits into you know academic freedom I mean every university needs to have um, you need to investigate issues at your university and and you know but but gave a very nuanced um, I think take on you know the fact that a university ought to explain ideas but universities especially a Christian university is not committed to you know, viewpoint diversity or agnosticism. Um, So, so essentially, they, they, they reaffirmed their commitment that they were going to ask important questions in the classroom, and then answer them with particular answers grounded in their, um, in the Christian tradition and in their legacy. Um, And then, you know, the great thing, I mean, they gave the, the board of directors, this is very rare for boards to do. I mean, they gave very detailed sort of explicit instructions to the administration of the college for what they should do to sort of remediate the situation.
0: Yeah, that's uh, really remarkable. And that article, when it came out uh, in American Reformer, it really went uh, super viral, huge traffic and moved the markets, uh, as you would say on it It was a very uh, well written piece, very factual. and. You know, I think you you bring up a very good point about comparing Grove City and Hillsdale, because if you look at Hillsdale, Hillsdale has been going from strength to strength. Mm -hmm. They are killing it. I mean, their uh, test scores uh, on their students now are reaching Ivy League levels. Their acceptance rates are declining because they're becoming much, much more selective. Hillsdale is essentially now an elite liberal arts school, And one reason is because Larry Arnn did successfully understand how to navigate this moment and clarify what they stand for as an institution. And people are looking for that clarity. Uh, Mm -hmm. And by the way, he's not a provocateur. He's not a jerk. uh, He's not attacking other people, uh, but they're saying, here's what we're about as an institution. And if you want to be part of this, come along. Uh, Whereas Grove City, uh, has not been experiencing that surge. And many of these Christian colleges have been struggling, frankly, to attract students. Uh, Mm -hmm. They have, their test scores are in decline. Their acceptance rates are going way up, which means they're becoming less selective. They're not known for academic excellence (laughs) and rigor. And so uh, I think, you know, what we're doing is not just about trying to get certain doctrines in place, but also helping these institutions position themselves to thrive in this century because these, these universities, for example, are facing existential crises, regardless of what we do. Staying in business is going to be a problem for a lot of them. And so helping to understand what you, your DNA as an institution is, how do you align with that clearly, articulating what you stand for in the 21st century is very important to being able to sustain and grow and have these institutions thrive in their mission, uh, it's not exclusively just about some of the doctrine, it's doctrinal issues, although we, we might say those are very important as well. But this attempt to sort of water down what you stand for in order to appeal to center left or kind of far left sensibilities, it just has not worked in terms of building institutional success. If it if it made a place, you know, the place to go, you could, you could at least say, well, you know, they had a good marketing strategy, but the, it's not even a good marketing strategy. It doesn't well, work. I mean, it, you know, conservative, some of these conservative homeschooling groups took Grove City off their list of recommended colleges. Like, don't go there. It's not the place you wanna be going. So it, it's actually hurting them with the kinds of people who would have sent their kids there. And it wasn't helping them. So this is actually helping them get better. And I I think Grove City has unlimited potential to be a more thoroughly Christian Hillsdale.
1: Absolutely. Uh, There's so much there. Nate and I have both kind of written about this a little bit, but um, there's, there's this crazy market mismatch that's going on right now. So, you know, higher ed in general is all talking about the demographic cliff. This is the fact that, you know, we're not, we're not reproducing above replacement rate as a society anymore which means there's just, there's going to be fewer bodies going to college just the general population um then also the the value proposition of college is under attack because of a lot of different reasons so all that's hitting um but at the same time especially coming out of covid like the numbers of parents who are sending their kids to you know homeschooling them or sending them to conservative christian schools has doubled over the last several years, it's growing. So when you hear, you know, and if you talk to to a leader from, you know, like a, you know, classical Christian association or homeschooling group, they'll tell you the problem is they don't have enough seats in colleges that that they trust to send all of their graduates to. It's demonstrated by Hillsdale, you know, they've got their acceptance rates 20%. What does that mean? 80% of their applicants, probably pretty good students can't get in and don't you know where else are they going to go? There's there's tremendous excess demand there, and um, you know so so there's there's that tremendous demand on one side, but then on the other side you've got a lot of a lot of Christian higher ed institutions that could be very logical choices, but they are um, you know they're talking about the general demographic cliff. They're not actually looking at the demographic uh, explosion in the sector that that they really should be oriented towards. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a weird market mismatch, and yeah, the opportunity for an institution that wants to lean into their Christian identity, be forward-looking, bold, it, it sky's the limit. I think for for higher ed leaders that, that want to get into that.
0: Yes, uh, and I think that's one of the things that we want to be able to do is help these institutions thrive by staying true to their mission, and. <laughs> invariably, the left doesn't like the mission of a lot of these schools, and that's why they want to change it, which ultimately hurts the institution. And we've seen this happen to so many fabled religious institutions, uh, which are now sort of controlled by people who have beliefs completely at odds with what the people who founded them uh, were, and, uh, you know, who in many ways actively repudiate the tenets of Christianity. It's very sad. And so we have to make sure that doesn't happen, Uh, you you know, and... And we have to stop that. You know, again, I I started writing on this issue because I saw uh, men turning to these online figures for life advice in a way from the church. Jordan Peterson, of course, is the biggest today. He was kind of a small fry guy when I got started. In fact, I'd never even heard of Jordan Peterson when I started. I saw a lot of other uh, small people out there. And originally it was a bunch of small people. Now it's Gigantic. I mean, the number of people following Peterson or uh, that wacky Andrew Tate guy, who I guess is now cooling his heels at a Romanian jail, or Joe Rogan, it's astonishing. And there's a lot of these influencers, but they're not turning to the church. What I realized is, again, the evangelical church is just off in its teachings uh, on gender. And I think there are a number of these flashpoint issues where the, the evangelical church has been off base uh, as well and the Protestant churches have been off base uh, for a bit. And I think the race issue is, is one where things have gone gotten sideways a little bit. And then also politics. Um, Nate do you have any perspectives on like what the key issues are that are sort of driving some of this institutional drift today and you know where reform where are the topics where reform is really needed?
2: So I'd say, I'd say at a high level and maybe this will be a step above that above the specific issues, but how people look at, how these institutions look at authority, how they how they see themselves in the broader society uh, touches all of these. And uh, you look at it in terms of higher ed administrators, right they, there's a high return on being Hillsdale, but there's not a lot of higher ed administrators who know how to be Hillsdale. Uh, they, the sort of person who climbs that ladder does not, does not understand how to take a divergent path. Uh, it's similar to MBAs, many MBAs by their very nature, know how to follow a playbook that's the same playbook as the crowd is following. And uh, essentially, I think an institution like that, people like that are captive to, I like to call it the status hierarchy in which they operate. Uh, if you're a Christian college and you start to brag about how many of your graduates you get into Harvard grad programs. If you try to hire professors and the professors, uh, you, you judge the professors by the rank of their PhD, uh, you effectively are operating within a status hierarchy that is set by higher rank institutions, which means there's some leeway for you to be a Christian flavor within that hierarchy, but too far outside of that and uh, too far out outside of that. and you're going to tend to be disadvantaged. And secondly, the sort of people you're hiring, the administrators you're hiring who come from so-called prestigious schools have learned a playbook that is defined by those prestigious schools. And that is not the playbook that they should be playing. So I think as long as they as long as long they see themselves within a hierarchy that is set by other institutions, they're going to tend to play the game that is set by those institutions. And that's deeply flawed. The right approach the right approach a school should take is they should uh, they should have the self-confidence to know that we understand the truth. We understand very important truths, profoundly important truths that other people are blind to. Uh, to put it bluntly, Harvard does not know what an education means anymore. And you compare the institution, you look at their institutional capability compared to maybe their own entrance examination 100 years ago. And it's clear that as an institution, they actually lack the they lack the basic basic tenets that would have been uh, that, that Harvard a hundred years ago would have recognized as the core to a good education. And if we understand that, if we understand that they lack, that they don't even understand what an education means, why do we let them set the standard by which we judge uh, schools? Unless we're actually in the business of conventional status. And if we're in the business of conventional status, then a we're always going to be C players on this. Calvin College, where I went, is nothing going to be is never going to be anything more than a mediocre mediocre liberal arts college in that hierarchy, uh, and B, it's not even trying to, it's no longer trying to be a great institution of education. Uh, so I think the most important thing is actually, it's really building an independence to the, to the status hierarchy and really to the sort of credentialing mechanisms that dominate the, uh, the rest of the world. And, and traditionally, you would see that as sort of a, a costly move, I think. Opting out of a status hierarchy is is costly in many ways, but increasingly, you've seen that a very large share of Americans have lost faith uh, in those institutions. They they've lost trust for very good reasons. You saw in terms of COVID, you saw lies from people who were supposed to be very very credible, very very credential. And if they've if those institutions themselves have lost credibility, you're no longer giving as much. You're giving up. You're giving up something in terms of sort of conventional power and certain types of social status, but you're no longer giving up nearly as much. And you're actually freeing yourself for what in many circles is actually a, uh, a higher status game. I mean, th- going to your point about the men's movement, right, dissident men's movement, I would say the same thing in dissident tech. A lot of venture capitalists, a lot of venture capitalists who might not be Christian, nonetheless, recognize how discredited those credentialing institutions are. And they are having very free-flowing discussions about alternative ideas, about alternative status mechanisms. And these are very high-status people. These are people who are moving billions of dollars. They're people who are associated with some of the uh, most prominent startups. A lot of people in the crypto world see this. They're people who recognize that, uh, they're recognized that there's a profound uh, brokenness in the institutions. And they're going for solutions that are sufficiently independent to actually... Uh, actually solve that problem. And I think Christians have a huge amount to add to that. We actually understand a much richer and much more grounded set of alternative answers uh, in a world where you recognize that the the dominant legacy uh, hierarchy is, has failed. And yet these Christians refuse to, in many cases, these Christian institutions refuse to embrace that and refuse to recognize that that distinction is actually an asset. I mean, I guess to put it at, the, at a at another high level, these institutions cannot answer Pontius Pilate's question. If if they can't say what truth is, then that is a massive void that a lot of people are hungry for alternatives to. A lot of people recognize they're hungry for alternatives and we do know that. So I think the, I think the big culture, I think you see the big cultural touch point issues around, uh, to some extent you see them around gender, you see them around race as you highlight, But I think the COVID era actually made very clear that in many cases, it actually does center on a deference to credentialed authorities. That is above all. And those credentialed authorities are increasingly asserting their so-called often scientific expertise in any domain around society so it was gender they'll assert a sort of scientific explanation for gender if it's race they come up with critical race theory which is an academic theory that explains the world that justifies that that racial response so again uh it, it sort of in many cases i think this deference to credentialed authorities is actually the the root of many of these cultural divides
0: Yes, you're right about that. It's interesting that all of us have a lot of success in the legacy credential world. Uh, we didn't mention earlier, but both of you went to Harvard Law School, so you have those fancy credentials. I was a partner in the consulting firm Accenture. I was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute in New York City. And yet we all, in essence, checked out of those because once you buy into that status hierarchy, then you are a prisoner of it. You cannot deviate from the party line. And maintain uh, your credential; it could be revoked, you know, in, in a sense. And that that legacy system may have worked for Christians in the past, in what I labeled the positive world or what I labeled the neutral world, where society was either favorable towards or at least neutral towards Christianity. But today, when the price of admission to society is agreeing and affirming things that are going to be contrary to Christian teaching, you're really shackling yourselves when you essentially decide that you're going to buy into that credentialing hierarchy. And you're right, that ultimately is one of the roots of the problems that we see in many of these areas. There's really no space for speaking truth, even when it's very rigorously proven, as Jordan Peterson found out when he went on the UK's Channel 4 and started discussing substantive complementarity of gender in which, you know, men and women are just different on certain traits that has certain consequences. And even though he's a PhD in psychology and knows all the literature and was a professor at Harvard and University of Toronto, which is basically like the Harvard of Canada, he gets attacked anyway. So being actually true doesn't even help you on these things.
1: Yeah, as a recent, um, you know, a, a recent refugee, I guess, from the you know mainstream uh, status credentials, um, the the state that you have to live in. I mean, you, you can make it certainly you can make it known that you're that you're a Christian in, in professional environments, right? That that's fine, but you have to constantly self censor, uh, particularly on certain topics and. You know, over time, um, you know, if you're a bit more independent, if you want, if you're the sort of person that wants to make your views known and advocate for them, you know, publicly and proudly, you know, the cost of uh, the cost of being in this in this uh, status hierarchy just gets very high. And so I think um, we're seeing every day uh, all sorts of people who are, you know, very well credentialed, according to the legacy credentialing systems who want out and they want to find a way to become resilient and be able to speak their mind and hold their head high. And it's, it's encouraging to see uh, because it's, there's a lot of energy behind that movement right now.
2: I would say, I would say speak their mind and I would say actually take courses that lead to something other than the stagnation that is dominant. So when it comes to these institutions, and this is really the same point that Teal made when in zero to one about uh, venture is if you don't, if you don't have a, Deeply independent, uh, a, a firmly held independent perspective, then you can essentially expect the mediocrity of a competitive market, which mm-hmm. ultimately competes away any profits. And uh, so, I, I actually think if you're if you're trying to do, what's interesting is in a very professional econ, in a professional managerial economy, you. Earn a good professional managerial salary by uh, working extremely hard and making lots of sacrifices in your life. You essentially get a reasonably high hourly rate, but you're you're not necessarily. Uh, and there's sometimes windfalls. There's often sort of windfalls that come from uh, subsidies that are built in to subsidize that class in our society. But uh, in, in practice, you're you are a commodity. You're a, you're a high level commodity in many ways. Uh, whereas if you're actually trying to do anything different, then you're only able to do that outside of the hierarchy. And that goes to sure. leadership in a Christian college. If you want to take a different path, if you want to be Hillsdale, you can only do that if you're willing to, uh, if you're willing to give up on the world. And and it's, I think it's very similar to the Christian idea that whoever, uh, you, have to, you have to give up this world to win something greater. And uh, certainly in a negative world, in a world where the, world where the status hierarchies in our society are are fundamentally unchristian disconnected from christianity then it's clearly true you have to be willing to abandon those and take whatever hits go with that to uh to pursue the truth and to pursue the the returns that potentially come from the truth and may not be guaranteed that those do but they offer a path to survival for christian institutions
0: yeah You know, from an American reformer perspective, I think we're very committed to aligning with the truth and speaking the truth, uh, regardless of what those credentialing institutions think about it. And one of the reasons that we need an institution like American Reformer is to create an institutional home and a platform for people to do that. And to start creating structures that are not captive to those legacy credentialing hierarchies that constrain people and force them to uh, either curate uh, their their selection of truths that they talk about or outright lie. And I think we need to be able to, you know, live not by lives, confidently articulate the truth. And therefore, we have to have an institutional infrastructure that provides a mechanism to do that. And so that's what our journal is doing directly. And also, you know, giving an institutional home to people like me who are able to do that work and also helping other people become those institutions uh, and sort of allow themselves to align around truth in their mission and not get dragged by the drift of our society into places they don't wanna go. Josh, what is coming up uh, from American Reformer in
1: 2023? Yeah, so um, we've got a lot of, growth plans, um, on the journal side, really want to expand our content. So we're um, we've, we we're hiring a couple of additional editors. We want to get up to daily publication pace, uh, work, working towards that end. Um, we're going to maintain our, our um, academic uh, quality journal articles, but we're going to be incrementally moving into um, some shorter pieces as well, uh, some pieces that are a little bit more responsive to uh, news cycle items or matters of, very pressing recent concern. Um so really, really excited about that. I mean doing that is going to we hope kind of maintain our existing audience, but also reach a slightly broader group of people who, you know, Christians who need actionable advice uh for issues that are, you know, coming up in their church, in their community. Um, we are launching two podcasts. First one's launching next week. Um so Ben and I are going to be running an editors' podcast. Ben Dunson's our editor in chief over at the journal. Um, this will be sort of a weekly roundup format, and then the second podcast is going to be an authors' interview series hosted by William Wolfe with a with a, uh, a series of different um, article authors from from our website. Very excited about ramping up that additional content for our for our readers. Um, we're rolling out a um, a membership plan actually with the website, so this is this is gonna be really cool. We're gonna be building some community like features. We're um, debating which platform to run this on, but we'll we'll be ha- hosting an online virtual platform for um, for folks who subscribe, um, where they can you know coordinate. This will be a highly trusted community where where folks can communicate, uh, coordinate on reform efforts, and just have important discussions. Um, with other trusted discussion partners uh, that, that we can help create. Um, so, so more to come on that in the next couple of weeks. And we're really excited about that. Uh, we're doing some events this year. So, um, you know, uh, actually currently in, in planning stages on a number of things, don't have dates yet on, on those, but please be on the lookout for those because we'll be, we'll be publicizing very soon, we hope. Um, a series of different events uh, in different parts of the country, some in partnership with other organizations.
0: Great. And the one thing we didn't mention uh, that we actually piloted last year in sort of a low-key way we're going to be expanding is the Cotton Mather Fellows Program. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, yes. And and we'll be getting actually application information up on that on our website in the next month or so. But, Great. yeah, so, so last summer we had, um, we had six fellows come through our pilot program. Uh, these were – I mean, just very talented young young folks, um, ranging from sort of uh, college graduates up to folks doing graduate work. Uh, we uh, th- these are people who have demonstrated high potential, and that can come in various ways. Some of them are are very charismatic or effective, um, you know, writers, influencers. Some of them are their influence is more on the, the academic side, so it's people getting PhDs in, in fields that matter who, who write for us. Um, so, you know, we, we sort of, um, all of them come in under the Cotton Mather umbrella, but uh, some of them we slot into our reform work and some we slot into helping with our journal and they, they write for us and they help to edit our articles. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and all of it's, you know, great content. We work with Colin Redimer from the, from the Davenant Institute. He, he works with us on that program to uh, take all of our fellows through a course of reading that includes you know, Aristotle and uh, some of the magisterial uh, reformers, and then, you know, even some modern stuff like uh, Carl Schmitt or, you know, Christopher Caldwell Good, you know, some more contemporary or modern books. Uh, and uh, it's, a great, it's a great course of reading, very substantive teaching. Colin Redimer is a trained philosopher, so, you know, just fantastic discussion and Socratic method with, with the fellows. Um, and, yeah, we'll, we'll be having details on that in the coming month on our website, uh, but we'll run an application process there. It's was competitive last year. I expect it to be highly competitive this year, but we're, we're really excited to build out this, this, uh, this base of friends, you know, and, um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, working with them as they, you know, be be advisors and counselors to them as they advance in their careers and, you know, hopefully help, help to, uh, place them in good institutions. And, uh, you know, and, and be an asset to them as they build and a community for them, for their support.
0: Great. And if people want to get involved with American Reformer, what should they do?
1: Yeah, uh, check out our website. So, um, you know, if, if you are interested in volunteering, if you would like to talk to us about um, a situation at one of your institutions, uh, you can go to our website, go to our reform uh, page and, you know, uh, email the email address there and you, you'll, we'll we'll reach out on that um we uh you know we, we're a nonprofit organization we're growing uh, we need financial support so uh, we would really invite you if you for those who are capable and interested um you know please go to our, our again, our website americanreformer.org and and consider making a donation or a gift um right now we do have a match on the table so um during the next month any gift that's made to american reformer will be matched up to uh, 100K. And so we're uh, really honored to have that match on the table and and uh, actually actively, actively seeking financial support off of that uh, for the month of January.
0: Excellent. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining to talk about American Reformer. Is there anything else either of you would like to add before we uh, wrap up? We're coming up on about an hour here having talked. All right. Well, thank you very much, Nate, Josh. Really appreciate it and look forward to working with you over the next year and beyond.
1: Thank you very much.